Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in 1 Peter today called Under Pressure with a message titled Concerning This Salvation. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. On the odd occasion, I've been interviewed by either someone in the secular media or someone in academia. And as I remember those interviews, it seems to me that they all contained something similar, something I thought was very strange. At some time in the interview, I was asked if I believed that faith is believing in those things for which there is no evidence. And that I thought was strange. I mean, where did that idea come from that the definition of faith is believing in that for which there is no evidence? I mean, in each case, in the interview, I said, most definitely not. And then I would have thought that the interviewer would have asked me then to give a definition of faith. Instead, I was met with incredulity, as if, well, perhaps you don't want to admit it right now. So wink, wink. I mean, we know that's precisely what you think. You know, in each of those cases, I wish I had a chance to do the interview all over again. I wish I could have gone back and said, well, let's stop this entire interview and spend the rest of our time on the definition of faith. See, in my mind, the interview would have arrived to that place where we could all agree that every single human being lives their lives on the basis of some kind of faith. You know, the secular naturalist has faith. He or she believes there's no God, that all living things descended from more primitive life forms. They believe in evolution, even though the fossil record contains no transitional form. Still, they believe that the transitional forms have been lost and that they must have existed, even though they have no evidence for that. And I, as a Christian, also have faith. I mean, my faith is in God, not in something that doesn't exist. And I believe in his only son, Jesus. My faith is based upon Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the surety of his promises. I've staked my entire life on that proposition. But alas, that interview exists only in my head. It never happened. And yet, in some ways, it's happening all the time. That interview is happening every day we live. Let me explain. And we started studying First Peter. First Peter was written by the apostle Peter, the leader of the apostolic band, the man chosen by Jesus. Peter's writing to a group of churches who at that time were all located in what we now think of as the nation of Turkey, but was then a series of Roman provinces or Roman administrative districts. Nero, the mad and cruel emperor of Rome, was then in power. And Peter was living in Rome, and he's aware just how dangerous the situation is becoming for Christians. Eventually, Peter himself would be crucified in Rome, but as he writes his letter, Peter knows that his readers are facing a fiery trial of persecution and suffering. And when it comes to suffering, every Christian would have known that the suffering would have ended the moment they renounced their faith in Jesus. I mean, just walk away from Jesus and you're going to walk away from all your troubles. But Peter has begun his letter by reminding Christians that they're in a very favorable situation. They have something that no one else has. They have a living hope, an imperishable inheritance, one that's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. This is where faith comes in. It will come down to this. They will trust Jesus as they walk through the fiery trial. They will believe that Jesus will test them in the fire and that their faith will emerge having been cleansed from all impurities. 
that, as I said yesterday, was where they would end up. And that's where I would hope we would end up as well. And that leads Peter to say more about the salvation this group of Christians have embraced. So let's read now, 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's important to remember that Peter writes these words some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, at that time, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Peter's assuming that the Jews would have been a part of the dispersion and the Gentiles probably had never been to Israel. And in either case, by far, those in these churches had never personally, physically seen Jesus, even while there were plenty around who had. This group had not. And even though their encounter with Jesus had only been through hearing and then believing, still, says Peter, they love him. Their sufferings hadn't made them miserable. It had made them filled with love. Now, you might remember the account of Thomas after the resurrection. John records it in John chapter 20. Thomas had not been present during the first resurrection encounter, and nevertheless, the rest of the apostles had been there, and they had explained in detail that it really was Jesus raised from the dead. Indeed, the marks of the crucifixion were still on him, and yet he is in his glorified body. But Thomas is unmoved, unless, he says, I see and jam my hand into his side and feel his body. I'm never going to believe this. Dead men don't rise. And then, of course, Jesus is there. And in the end, Thomas falls on his knees before Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, he believes. But then do you remember what Jesus said next? Blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. See, that doesn't mean blessed are those who have no evidence of the resurrection, but still believe. I'll show you in a little while why that can't be the interpretation of those words, but rather it means there would be generation after generation of believers who had not been there during the resurrection, but they would believe. But that part, that the Christian life is based on believing or on faith, well, that's absolutely true. To believe means to trust. It means to have confidence in Jesus. And furthermore, the verb to believe. It's in the present tense. It gives the sense of an ongoing activity. You continue to believe each hardship that you're in. And this believing is accompanied, said Peter, with rejoicing, with a joy that words can't express. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that Christians worship and sing. It's because we have to find some way of expressing the joy that we have. The joy is unutterable, but it's real. It's also exalted, filled with glory, says Peter, for it's a joy that results from being in the presence of God. And and here's the mystery of the Christian faith. It's a personal faith. It's not just confidence in Jesus. Of course, it is that. But it's joyful confidence in Jesus. It's personal joy. It's pleasure in Jesus. It's delight in him. It's the heart that overflows and looks for a way of expressing just that. And then Peter adds the phrase that believers are also obtaining the outcome, that is, the final result of their faith, that is, the salvation of their souls. And the word soul shouldn't be understood as, you know, that part of us that's not physical. Here the word soul is used to refer to the whole person, body and spirit. The final result of our faith is that we're bodily resurrected from the dead and being introduced into his eternal kingdom. So let's talk about faith, yeah? 
It's the conviction that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is indeed a historical fact. But it's also from that a conviction that we're counting on that truth as we go through suffering. And furthermore, our faith becomes intensely personal, resulting in a deep love for Jesus along with joy in him, always looking forward to the final outcome of this matter. Now, Peter has more to say about this faith. Now, lest we still believe that faith is devoid of objective evidence, listen to what Peter says next. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, this passage links our faith to the First Testament. See, Peter wants his readers to understand that the Christian faith isn't a recent faith. See, at that time, it was no more than 30 years old. Rather, he says, the faith you have in Jesus is linked to the Hebrew Bible, or what we now call the Old Testament, or what I prefer to call the First Testament. Peter is saying, look, the salvation you're experiencing now, it's the same salvation that was proclaimed from the beginning of time. You know, the First Testament prophets from Moses all the way through to Malachi were constantly speaking about the coming of the Messiah. They were searching. They were asking questions. They were examining their own prophecies, trying to discern when the prophecies that they had made would come to fruition. But I think the prophets were also attempting to grasp and reflect on what some of the earlier prophets, that is, the prophets that came before them had said. We know that's true from, you know, for instance, Daniel 9-2, where Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah. See, that's what the First Testament prophets were also doing. They were doing what we do. They were reading the other prophets. Well, says Peter, that's what the First Testament prophets did concerning the Messiah. They were obsessed with the idea of the Messiah. What would the Messiah be like? When would he arrive? And says Peter, they're not just serving themselves or their own curiosity. They knew that they were serving you, that is, New Testament believers. June is back to the Bible Canada's fiscal year end. As such, it's a crucial month for the ministry financially. Despite the financial impact of the last couple of years, Back to the Bible Canada has still been able to provide sound Bible teaching and engagement resources and even produce new ministry resources thanks to the loyal support of our listeners. This year, our fiscal year-end target is $409,000. And to help us reach that, several generous ministry supporters have graciously offered to match your donations this month up to $100,000. That means your gift has doubled the impact. We'd be so grateful if you might consider helping us achieve our financial target this fiscal year end. To make your gift today or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When we read the New Testament and come upon the word Christ, I think it would be helpful for us to immediately translate that word to Messiah. Jesus Christ simply means Jesus the Messiah. 
And when Peter talks about the activity of the prophets, wanting to know the time of the Christ, he means the time of the Messiah. In short, Peter says, the writers of the First Testament were obsessed with the theme of the Messiah. Now, let's step back from the details of what Peter's saying, and let's ask a more broad question. Is that really true? And I say that because I've now been to Israel many times, and our Jewish guides, while they say very nice things about Jesus, they all balk at the idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the First Testament. They can accept Jesus as a great rabbi, but not the subject matter of the First Testament. And since Peter says that the First Testament prophets were predicting the sufferings of the Messiah, where do we find that? And by the way, it's not only Peter who spoke that way. Jesus did as well. Luke 24, 26 records Jesus asking his disciples, was it not necessary that the Christ or the Messiah should suffer these things and enter his glory? And then again in Luke 24, 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ or the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, it's written. It was necessary that these things happen in just this way because that's what the First Testament prophets spoke about. But where did they speak that way? See, this is essential to our faith. So let's start with Genesis 3.15. There we were told that the serpent will bruise the heel of the Messiah. You, the great deliverer in the future, will be wounded by the serpent, but in the process you'll bruise his head. Suffering. Or we might go to David's words in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And David, as you remember, is a forerunner of the Messiah. And he speaks not just of his own groaning, but the groaning of the great king who's going to come after him. Or Psalm 22, 7 to 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Or look again at verse 18 of the same psalm. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Or Psalm 69:21, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And in Isaiah 50, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah, speaking about the servant of the Lord who is to come, who's also the Messiah, says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I did not my face from disgrace and spitting. And then later in chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And of course, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses four and five, surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then on to verse 7 of the same chapter. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And it doesn't just end there. Zechariah 12 verse 10, speaking about the end of the age. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And Peter says that the First Testament prophets not only spoke of the sufferings of the Messiah, but also of the subsequent glories. And here again, we might quote a number of prophecies. Psalm 16, verse 10, 
for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Or Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Yes, says Peter. The First Testament prophets were more than aware of these prophecies. But we might also take note that the First Testament prophets were also aware that the events they were writing about longed for a greater fulfillment. I mean, think of Abraham offering his son on the altar at the very place where Jesus would eventually be offered on the cross. Is not Jesus the greater Isaac and the fulfillment of that which the story of Isaac could never fully explain? Or think about Moses building a tabernacle in which offerings would be offered, offerings that could not solve the sin question. Is there not something in that account that's left outstanding, waiting to be resolved? Is not Jesus the fulfillment of all that the guilt and sin offerings in the tabernacle and temple looked forward to? Or think about Joshua entering the promised land, the great conqueror, giving rest to the wandering people of Israel. But is that historical account also not left unresolved? I mean, after all, after Joshua conquered and gave them rest, did they enjoy the rest? Or weren't they back to sinning and incorporating the idols of the nations around them into their worship and into their country of rest? And didn't that all end up with the Babylonians being sent by God and destroying them? Their rest was lost. Is there not something that needs to be completed? A story of a greater Joshua who gives his people ultimate rest. Or think of David, the great king, who restored righteousness to Israel and who conquered all of Israel's enemies. And yet here too, the story disappoints because David himself sins. His family ends up in disarray. The nation is in civil war. And when David dies, even then, Solomon, his son, is contested in his coming to the throne. See, the kingdom of David is as great as it is, again left with unresolved promises. The reader is left with a deep sense of longing. Surely one greater than David can do what David was unable to do. And then came the Messiah Jesus, the greater David, the one who never sinned, the one who conquered hearts, established a kingdom that would never pass away. See, we could go on and on. We might speak of Nehemiah restoring the temple. And yet that very temple would be destroyed, not this time by the Babylonians, but by the Romans. Would we not want a temple, a place of worship that could never be destroyed? Jesus is that temple. He is the greater Nehemiah. I could go on and on, but this is the point. The First Testament prophets, the ones who wrote the first 39 books of our Bible, they were completely aware of this unresolved problem, a problem that could only be fulfilled by the anointed one of God, the Messiah. They knew that the story they told lacked completion, and they eagerly awaited. Who would complete it? And that's what Peter mentions in verse 11. What person, what time, when would these events happen? And then says Peter, the spirit of Christ, or the spirit of the Messiah, was in them as they searched, as they inquired, as they predicted both the sufferings and the subsequent glories of the Messiah. Who would resolve that which was left unresolved? I think Peter, when he says the Spirit of the Messiah, means that these prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit who came to them so that they would write of the Messiah. And says Peter, that's the story of our faith today in Jesus. 
And these past prophets knew that they weren't just satisfying their curiosity as to when these things would happen. They knew that they were serving the community of the future Messiah. Now let's look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Did you know, says Peter, that when those preachers who first shared the good news of Jesus came to you, shared the gospel, you believed. They were the very last step in a long chain of men of God who finally culminated in the story of your salvation. And so, yes, concerning this salvation of yours and the faith you have in Jesus, this salvation is as ancient as the world itself. From the beginning of creation, from the fall of Adam into sin, God has been preparing and setting the stage for the salvation that you now enjoy. So what does that mean? It means that when Christians go through persecution or when Christians are suffering, or when they're tempted to wonder how God might have allowed them to suffer, that they remember that the things that they believe in are not cleverly invented by some huckster or by some religious salesperson. Rather, it's something far more substantial than that. Rome will pass away, and all the people we know will pass away. The heavens and the earth will pass away. But this salvation is eternal. Everything else that people believe in is based on myths and legends and superstitions, not this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one true thing. It's that one solid rock while everything else is shifting. When you suffer, remember this. And as you do, you will not falter. Thanks, John. A short question. Am I able to say with all certainty that my faith is, in fact, built on solid ground? One should be able to say that with a great deal of certainty if, in fact, you hold to the gospel, um, that you do not put any confidence in yourself, but in the declared truth that Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that all who put their hope in him uh, have the assurance that Christ has paid for our sins and that he has offered us eternal life. I mean, if our hope is in him, we have absolute assurance that we are in Christ and that our eternity is secure. Uh, If in some way we're hoping in ourselves, well, then we should have no reason for confidence whatsoever. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical to God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there are times when you may miss the radio program. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebiblecanada.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John. But you can also learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our mission is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is accessible to as many people in as many ways as possible. 
For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.